Welcome to Snakes and Funerals. I'm your host, Evan Morgan, and I'd like to call to the stand my first witness and co-host, Eli Berger. Oh, Eli. God. Oh, God. Is this how we're doing this? Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. As was suggested by uh, my bad uh, pun there, of which uh, I apologize in advance for the ones that will probably continue to happen throughout this episode, uh, today we're talking about films that sort of involve the law and court systems. We were trying to kind of do court movies, but the third film we picked is sort of the odd duck out. So we'll get to that when we get there. But uh, these films do share an interest in um, the law, as we said. And those films are Takashi Miike's Ace Attorney, John Ford's Sergeant Rutledge, and Raul Ruiz's Genealogies of Crime. And uh, regardless of their connection... Uh, I am glad that we somehow were able to fit Takashi Miike, John Ford, and Raul Ruiz into one episode. Uh, so we'll be starting with Ace Attorney today. So Eli, unless you have any objections, uh, I think we can just dig right into that yeah, one. Yeah, I, I want a new co-host. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough, but uh, overruled. So... Uh, yeah, so why don't you take us away with Takashi Miike's Ace Attorney? Great. Uh, so as someone who uh, has played the Ace Attorney video game um, and, and played it years before I, I saw Miike's film, I, you know, I, I really didn't know what to make going into it on my uh, initial viewing. And, and of course, I rewatched it for this podcast. But I, for my money, this is the um, best video game adaptation that has yet been made. That is not a very competitive field, um, <laughs> admittedly. But I do think that this movie is one of Miike's stronger films in recent years and uh, is actually m- largely faithful to the, to the game. And I'm not going to go over every single difference because they're, they're actually uh, a lot, even though I say it's largely faithful, I mean, it's, it's faithful in the general sense. And, and certainly does a very good job of translating game concepts to cinema that I don't really think that many other filmmakers uh, could have pulled off. Now, I'm curious, Evan, as someone who has no background with the game series and, in fact, asked me how this would work as a game. Um, what, you know, what were you, your thoughts on the movie? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I haven't played the game, so I guess I, yeah. it's hard for me to judge in that way. But I think you're right to say that it's one of the better, if not the best, video game adaptation. And I think the reason it feels that way is because it seems to translate the sort of syntax of video games and the the grammar of video games to the movie. So as someone not familiar with the games, as I was watching it, a lot of what I was doing was, I think, trying to kind of figure out, like work backwards from the movie to what the video game might feel like to play. So I, I think that was sort of my first reaction, which in a way kind of took me 
out of the movie in trying to sort of mm-hmm. dissect how the sort of uh, bizarre courtroom system, the sort of parody of uh, courtroom would play out in a video game. But I also found that a sort of compelling way into the movie. And I guess I think that aside from its sort of video game qualities and what it takes from the games, uh, which I think you could speak uh, further about, uh, I think that for me it plays, I think most interestingly, as sort of a parody of courtroom dramas, courtroom movies. Like it takes all the sort of basic setups of that and just amplifies them to the extreme where you literally have people throwing evidence in the opposition's face. Like it pops up on a screen and you can like hurl it at them. Uh, Things like that were sort of where I found uh, the most, uh, where I found the most enjoyable about the movie. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that specific example of, of, um, those uh, CGI screens that pop up in the movie because that is not in the game, at least not as a direct analog. Uh It's more, you know, you do present evidence in the game, but um, it just shows a a, a picture of the evidence. But that would not really translate well if you were to do it exactly. So I like that the film takes liberties and comes out with that conceit, which is actually, I'm not sure if you recall, uh, during the scene that takes place in that trial 15 years earlier, I love that they then showed an analog version of that. Yeah. And there are a lot of really great little touches in this movie. Early on in the film, Von Karma, who does not appear until late in the game, and, and they showed him very early on in this film, when he's talking to Edgeworth, you see him brush his shoulder and that is a neat little bit of foreshadowing um and a nod to uh people who already know the basic plot i mean there's there's an entire case in this game in the game that is about uh, a steel samurai and that's just thrown away a bit at the beginning and then a couple references to steel samurai things so yeah that was but a little confusing as, as much as yeah i mean as much as that I think does make for an entertaining game by just combining the most essential cases and making a narrative out of it. It you know works. It, it would not flow nearly as well. I, I think if it was um, faithful to the point of uh, not really bringing anything to the table itself. Yeah, and I think that the way that it flows, like the movie move super quickly that was one thing that i think did keep me out of the movie for a little bit at the beginning i don't think that the movie assumes that you have any foreknowledge of the game but mike's the way mike disperses narrative information especially at the beginning is so fast that it took me probably 20 minutes into the movie to sort of catch up and get my bearings with where everyone was but then it sort of maintains that energy throughout so it it even though it was a bit confusing at first, I was sort of able to tap into it as it as it went along, and the movie kind of I think gains a lot from hurtling forward like that. You know, I I think I keep coming back to um, things that I know were changed or added into Mika's adaptation um, because those are really curious to me, and I'm specifically thinking 
of when Phoenix Wright is talking to Miles Edgeworth in the cell and it dissolves into Edgeworth's account of what happened. You don't see something like that in the game. And it really is cool. <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. I'm sorry. But, um, oh, another thing. There's this really lovely bit with Yana Yogi where you see the what happened to him after the trial and then his dead wife's ghost comes back. That is also not in the game. And it's you know, a, a lovely, uh, very sad addition that strengthens things. Yeah, I think Mike. I mean, that moment like uh, allows for a sort of emotional beat that is, I think, appears maybe somewhat unlikely given the, the sort of uh, where this movie is coming from and the ridiculous hairdos and the sort of uh, oh, the haircuts in the movie in in the in this movie is uh, fantastic, and by going ahead with the conceit that we are going to try to look as much like these games as we can, with a, uh, an exception of a uh, couple characters whose appearances were changed, but that's not really important. But by just trying to match uh, this general look, but by using live action actors and emphasizing just how ridiculous this is. Uh, there's a lot of good comedy. Yeah, and actually one thing I was surprised about watching it is like, yes, I mean, there's like the ridiculous hair and the like screens being thrown around at people, but it engages more than I thought it would with the sort of more classically styled mise-en-scene that Mike is capable of mm-hmm. than I would have thought. Like, I guess I, before I had seen a frame of the movie, I was envisioning something much more... Uh, pop art colored and cartoonish and like obviously there's the hair and some outlandish costumes but for the most part it kind of maintains that sleek clean line kind of mise-en-scene that that Mike sometimes uh, does which I think provides an interesting sort of contrast to the the video game qualities of the movie yeah and um when Red White brings out that megaphone and <laughs> screams like that. You don't see that in the game, but what you would see is the criminal just losing their shit in a very cartoonish way you can't really have actors do. Um, so that was a way to do something that is feasible, but still completely ridiculous, and have it just intrude upon the realism of it. My favorite, like, little uh, ridiculous kind of things like that is whenever Phoenix or any of the other lawyers, although Phoenix uh, is something of a rather bad attorney, which is sort of funny, I guess, in yeah. of itself. But when he sort of does something stupid or misses an obvious point and everyone in the courtroom sort of, like, falls over. Yeah, with a Christmas. like, in unison. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, those moments, I don't know if, I assume something similar to that happens in the video games. And, no, and there's, so there's nothing fun. really with a oh, really? crowd in the game. Oh, okay. Yeah. And by, and, you know, by having that, you know, by having an audience there, you know, I, I think uh, that that's a really good invention on the Mika's part. Well, and I think the audience underlines a little bit and we can kind of get into this further as we talk about it, but what the movie 
sort of has to say and the way it envisions the courtroom itself, like the vision that this movie has of, of trials in the courtroom is essentially that it's been turned into, and and I guess at the beginning of the movie, it sort of outlines that in this sort of like future alternate world or whatever, crime is Mm -hmm. so high that they've implemented this, this new uh, bench trial system where there's like an artificial time limit of three days on each trial because they just have to like convict people and the lawyers like face off against each other. There's not really like the cross examinations and like sort of the normal course of, of trials. And I think that the, the way that the movie suggests how trials and courtrooms can sort of be turned into something that's more like entertainment, like a gladiatorial match, like obviously is the source of a lot of the fun in the movie. Yeah. But I think is kind of what it, it, it views courtrooms somewhat skeptic, skeptically, I think, and having the audience there as sort of, this chorus that's there for the entertainment value, uh, I think underlines that. Yeah, I agree. And that three day system is obviously ridiculous, but if you think about it, um, it's also anxiety provoking that, yeah, I could actually see, uh, that court system being implemented. Well, yeah, from a narrative standpoint, it, it increases the suspense quite a bit, you know, in, in the, um, the fact that, Everything seems to be very much against the defense is really it's a satire on anything. I think it is the idea of an adversarial system in courts. Yeah, like if I remember correctly, there's a whole bunch of moments where the judge presiding over the case. And also we should say there's no jury in this. Oh, no, it's always just the judge. of course, A single judge. Uh, The judge presiding over the case basically is like, well, we've we've heard everything we need to hear, like we can make a conviction and there's like a last minute, there's always like a last minute interjection by, or objection, I should say, uh, by Phoenix Wright to sort of get one last piece of evidence in there that then spins the trial out for another day or, or whatever. Well, there's that funny moment when, um, he's stalling for time by just talking slowly. (laughs) Yeah. I forgot about that. Um, Yeah. Another detail I like is when Von Karma, who is, interestingly, um, and I'm not sure if you figured out, like, how soon you figured out that this guy was behind everything. Um, it is... He just, he seems so sinister. Yeah, he so. seems sinister, <laughs> but it is made much more explicit. Like, you, you actually, like, you talk to him in the game before he cattle prods you and then knocks you unconscious, whereas this, he's a shadowy figure doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah, Von Karma, when uh, he's being exposed, you gradually see his perfectly formed hair just coming apart, <laughs> and by the end, <laughs> he looks disheveled. And there's a lot of really great uh, fast cutting in that scene to just emphasize how this guy's you know, very carefully crafted you know, deception and career is being unraveled by mm-hmm. this rookie who, as you said, is not great at his job. No, I mean, actually, that's one of the things that's funniest to me about the movie, especially given the title, <laughs> that he, like, is really quite a poor attorney throughout. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say he definitely believes in his clients, um, and the evidence is stacked 
very much against him, but the way that he goes about it is often very buffoonish. Intelligent sometimes, but certainly his the way that he acts in so many different situations, you know, makes him look like a, a clown. Well, and I think one thing that we'll actually see that's a, a connection between these very disparate movies is that they do all involve uh, lawyers who very much believe in and invest in the narrative of their clients who they're defending. And I guess it makes me wonder sort of in retrospect how much that is a sort of trope of the sort of lawyer courtroom movie. Like there's not a lot of courtroom movies about like a cutthroat cutthroat prosecutor who just wants to like throw the criminals in jail, right? I mean, they're always about someone who is wrongly accused usually and but the evidence is sort of stacked up against them and you need a, a good-hearted intelligent lawyer to to get them out of that situation and again the way that this movie sort of takes those courtroom cliches and puts lots of hair gel in them and amps them up to 11 yeah uh, it comes across i think in the portrayal of phoenix's character yeah something that always struck me as odd is the very opening of the movie, which is definitely not how the game opens. And I, I wonder if you were confused about that no, at Deeply. All. <laughs> I mean, it's also one of, in, I guess that's sort of more the style, too, that I imagined the rest of the movie was going to be in. Like I sort yeah. of mentioned how it, it settles into the sort of more precise mise-en-scene that that Mike does but that opening like is extremely colorful lots of cgi that's like very clearly cgi and throws like a ton of narrative information at you about this murder that you don't realize has any sort of relevance to the rest of what's happening in the film until yeah. about two-thirds of the way through but again in a way like it's confusing because of the particulars of this movie but as a narrative choice it seems again somewhat in line with the way that a lot of kind of crime courtroom movies function where they'll give you sort of something like a cold opening i'm thinking of something like even as sort of banal as like law and order where you get like some sort of cold opening that then sort of eventually threads back into the plot later on and i think if i had sort of been thinking about the movie as I had started it as being more in line with that sort of generic tradition, then I think maybe I wouldn't have been as, as thrown by it. But because of the sort of pedi- um, uh, pedigree of it being a video game, I was sort of in a different headspace. Uh, so in retrospect, I think it's, it would, it's less confusing than it is uh, initially. Yeah. There's uh, a nice little gag near the beginning with Larry Butts's trial, they're in that really little courtroom. Can we just say the names in this are also? Oh yeah, fantastic. the names are fantastic. <laughs> I love them all. You know, Dick Gumshoe is also great. <laughs> um, I'm sure I said Miles Edgeworth's name a few times. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, but yeah, anyway, uh, yeah. So in his trial, they're in that really little courtroom, and. Then it cuts to Edgeworth in that huge courtroom with a huge audience, and it's a lot. It's very brightly lit, and that's obviously where the other two cases take place in. But I like how at the end of the Butts trial, um, <laughs> someone just throws paper, whereas you know you have that CGI effects 
you know, confetti and, you know, not guilty. (laughs) (laughs) I totally forgot about that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there actually is, there's no real analog to the little courtroom gag in the game, but there is a not guilty thing, but it's done in, I think, in a funnier way in the movie because it is obviously just such an intrusion on reality. <laughs> well, and again, it's the way that this thing that's like should be life and death is turned into a spectacle where it's like the end of the Super Bowl or something where like the team's colors like are flying down in confetti like if you win the trial or whatever. Exactly. Uh, it's and quite funny. Of course he this is a movie in case we have not convinced you to see this movie already. This is a movie where a defense attorney um, cross-examines a parrot. <laughs> Yeah, this movie is like genuinely one of the funnier things I've seen in a while. Uh, oh yeah, it's which very also funny. was not really what I mean. Not that I expected it to be serious, obviously, but it, it strikes a very particular kind of humorous tone. Yeah, I think. Which um, brings me to something else that I was sort of thinking about watching this, uh, which is this film. I think really gave me a clear sense of why I prefer Takashi Miike's films to someone like Sion Sono. Like I was thinking as I was, as we were preparing to do this podcast, like about why I find the strange choices that Miike makes really like funny and, and compelling. Whereas I think Sion Sono trying to do something equally as ostentatious, just grates me to no end. And I think that Miike does it with no, winking like he takes the the video game at eye level exactly for what it is mm-hmm. and i don't think that it condescends to the video game at all no Whereas, not at all and which is exactly why it's funny and i think that something like i don't know tokyo tribe or something it's there's always this like kind of knowing thing that that sono is sort of winking at his audience about like, oh, don't you get how crazy and out there this is? And I love that Mike just encloses all that kind of humor and zaniness in this like very controlled, precise filmmaking style. So. I mean, I've not seen a Sono movie, uh. so I can't say, but I'm glad you liked Ace Attorney a lot. <laughs> I did. My one other little touch that I really love that I have no idea what's going on, but found it inexplicably hilarious is the like police like detective who's like a like in a mascot costume i don't know what that oh you mean the um the blue guy yeah yeah so that's the bailiff oh okay yeah and he uh what's (laughs) great is i had no idea what that was but i was laughing every time puts his hand on the judge's uh stand to prevent him from doing the gavel and then the witness is brought in you see that costume just fall apart and no one's in it. Oh, I don't think I caught that. Oh, maybe. Oh, um, which makes me think that was just like the um, supernatural interference of like the spirit of justice. And it's a really weird uh, choice, but I dig it because huh. it is very funny. And then if you notice that, as I did, uh, you realize that this really makes no sense, <laughs> but we're just going with it. And... Huh, I'll have to go back and yeah. see if I notice that. Yeah, that totally slipped by me. Yeah. So, any closing statements? 
Yeah, I don't know. This movie is a lot of fun. I or like should we I, move on to the next witness? What's yeah, the next witness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this movie is like a, a lot of fun. I I guess I don't know that I find much more beyond. Well, I, I the surface pleasures of it are are quite fun. Beyond this sort of satire of the courtroom and a sort of critique of the courtroom as a place where innocent people come to be sort of strung up for the pleasure of jeering crowds, which is not exactly the the most incisive critique, although, you know, a, a sometimes true one. Like, the movie didn't do much for me on, like, a more substantive level, I suppose, but I had a blast watching it, so... I Yeah, I completely agree. While, while you do have some critiques of... Uh, the legal system, it is mainly a movie that I like because the mise-en-scene is wonderful, his direction is very sharp, and as a case study in how to translate a medium that is generally not translated well, even though this is adventure game, essentially, so there's no real action segment that would have to be translated. It's very narrative-driven. Uh, I think it's a great example of um, how to translate a video game to the screen well without condescending to its source material. Yeah, and I I think that the next film we're going to talk about in terms of the sort of way it uses the courtroom as a way to explore weighty social issues is quite the contrast. Uh, oh, yeah. So let's take a little break and then we will come back to discuss John Ford's Sergeant Rutledge. Okay, uh, we're back, and now for our second film, Sergeant Rutledge, directed by John Ford from 1960. I don't know about you, Evan, but I was under the impression before I saw this, which I saw just recently for this podcast, uh, that this was a minor Ford film, but I thought this was quite incredible, and and one of his strongest, which is saying something because he's maybe my favorite American director. And the way that this film goes into the themes that it does, but ties it to a very expressionist palette, is not what I was expecting. Um, Not that I I think Ford's films are very uh, plain or anything. They're certainly not. But I, I think this is the most expressionistic of his Tendacolor films that I, I've seen. And 
Uh, that's just talking about it very generally. There's so much to get into here with race and uh, specifically between black men and white women. So I really just want to, you know, finish talking about it generally, and let's talk about why this movie is a masterpiece. Well, I guess I would say uh, I am. I don't think it's minor Ford, but I guess I'm not quite as on board uh, with it being major masterpiece level Ford. And I think the part of the reason why is that I actually find parts of the film where it is not quite as overtly expressionist to be a little bit kind of plainer Ford than is my preference, which is a minor complaint, really. But I think part of the reason it gets tagged with this label as being minor, and I guess I would say that like if even if it's not my favorite Ford or among my favorite Fords, I think it's an, an absolutely essential film in his career. But I think the reason it, it gets treated as being minor is that it has this reputation among people who are sort of not Fordians as, as being something of an apology along with uh, Cheyenne Autumn for the way that Ford treated the communities each film uh, respectively depicts uh, in prior films. And so I think for some people, it, it seems to be something that is there as a sort of footnote or brief rewrite of prior elements in Ford uh, which I think could allow it to be seen as as something minor if you treat it as Ford apologizing for, you know, the 80 films or whatever he made previously, then it, just by virtue of scale, it, it seems minor. Uh, I, on the other hand, think that that is a ridiculous idea and that this film is an expansion and a clarification of what's been in Ford all along. I think the particulars of making it in 1960 and having one of his regular actors, uh, Woody Strode, uh, sort of promoted to leading man for this movie, allow him to go to places regarding race and America more explicitly than he's done in the past. But I think as, as a sort of explication of that particular part of Ford uh, is most certainly not, not minor. Yeah, I, I'm not going to entertain the argument that you brought up because I think it's ridiculous and I don't really think it's worth going into um, because there's so much to talk about here. And glad you brought up the man who plays the title character, Woody Strode, who gives a phenomenal performance in this movie. He is very stoic throughout most of the movie uh, in a way that if you didn't know any better, might come across as underwhelming um but he's really a man under unimaginable at least for me uh for, for you know for someone who could not you know relate to being in a situation you know i i can't imagine this but this film has and, and i am jumping ahead quite a bit and i want to go back after something that i've not seen in Maybe any other Ford film except maybe The Long Gray Line um, is having their, having his protagonist, in this case Woody Strode, break down and cry in a way that you never see with 
John Wayne or Henry Fonda or, you know, Will Rogers, any of the leading men in Ford movies. It's incredibly moving to me. Yeah, and I think that scene is what... I mean, I think Woody Strode is fantastic throughout the movie, and he has such a coiled kind of feeling. Like, you just sense that the the anger is so tight up in him, inside of him, that he sort of, like, is so stiff. But that scene, when he breaks down, is so powerful that if you had any doubt that he was sort of not doing that sort of stoicism intentionally, what he's able to conjure in that moment, I think should uh, wash away any doubt regarding the the quality of his, his performance. And I think you're, you're right to connect it to the long gray line because that is really the other Ford film from sort of the later period when he's in the sort of more uh, mournful uh, kind of mode that he takes on uh, later in his career the one that really focuses again on a, a minority figure in American life. In that case, uh, an Irish immigrant in, um, I believe it, is it the late 19th century, early 20th century? Yeah. Early 20th and, century. Yeah. And, you know, here, of course we have uh, Woody Strode, a, a black man as, as the lead and the sort of social pressures that bear down upon them, that don't bear down upon the John Wayne and Will Rogers characters become so oppressive that they have kind of these, these outbursts. I mean, in the case of the long gray line, it's less uh, explicitly a a sort of systematic prejudice than it is uh, in Sergeant Rutledge, certainly. But I think that connection between Mm -hmm. those characters and those films is, is quite potent. Yeah. Um, now, if if there's a Ford film that I actually thought about while watching this to connect it to, it would be The Searchers. Not because I think that these films have much in common thematically, but because there are shots and gestures made by Mary Beecher, who I believe the actress is Constance Towers, and she's also very good at this movie, mm-hmm. um, that seem to mimic some famous now now famous shots from the searchers and knowing ford i well i don't think that he was necessarily trying to draw an explicit parallel to the searchers the you know the fact that you know if you were to take images from that film and this film side by side just just specifically those images when you know mary beecher is you know looking and trying to gesture for somebody almost like looking on the horizon for uh, John Wayne coming back in the searchers. You know, they, they do resemble each other, except in this, there's, for most of the film, when she does that, there's nobody coming. Mm. Um, but anyway, I, I feel like the first real expressionist moment actually comes from when Mary is giving her first testimony and the room gradually darkens and until it until Ford cuts to um you know the flashback that constitutes her testimony and that's a, a very early indication that this film is in a lot of ways not striving for photorealism um because this film is i, I think a film of you know a, a very it's it's a film about subjectivity really not in the way that Rashomon is not anything like that, but I, I think that the expressionism works because of the way that 
uh, narrative information is related to throughout this movie. Yeah, and I think the the point you bring up about subjectivity is really great because I think the way in which the movie is about subjectivity for me is not so much whether or not the particular thing that they're testifying to happened in the way that it is in Rashomon. Like, I don't think as a exactly, viewer, yeah. as a viewer, that you're particularly ever convinced that Woody Strode was capable of committing the crime at the center of this movie. Like, he's such a uh, a noble figure that I don't think the movie really sows that that seed of doubt in you. And if anything, the fact that as a viewer, you don't really have that seed of doubt makes the fact that all of the white people in the film view the systems that the the trial kind of moves through, the courtroom, the sort of military uh, book, as they constantly refer to it as the movie, the sort of military code, they all believe that that code will exonerate Woody Strode's character, Sergeant Rutledge, if he truly is innocent. And what Rutledge knows, and, and this is for me like the most powerful thing in the movie, is that that system will not, if it is operating correctly, will not exonerate him, even if he's innocent. And that's where that sort of subjectivity is. The, the white people in the movie, even the ones who are aligned with Rutledge, his lawyer and friend, they keep saying, like, trust in the system, trust in the court, like, it will work. And he knows that that's just because from their sort of point of view, it always does. And, and he knows that it, it won't, that it, it, at least it's designed not to work for him. Yeah, and he talks about, you know, they, they find that uh, letter um, of, or and I, the document of uh, yeah, freeing him, mm-hmm. um, and then you find yeah, out. Yeah, just to clarify, he, he carries around yeah. with him a piece of paper. Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly what it is. Like, it's it's the letter that basically describes that he was a slave and is Well, this was after free. the Civil War, so right. I think that's, you know, a personal effect of his, right. and not a legal document. But anyway, um, did you see him in handcuffs while they're reading that letter? And it is, you know, I mean, it's, it's an unmistakable comparison um, mm-hmm. that he understandably feels that even though he did not do it, they are just not going to believe him. And, you know, what's, what's interesting, um, one of the interesting things to me is how you don't know exactly what he did at first, or what, rather what he's accused of doing at first. Mm. Um, misspoke slightly. And at first you think he's accused of murdering the man that um, Mary Peacher found when she was dropped off by the train, and you think that's what he's being accused of, and then you realize he's, you know, being accused of, you know, rape of a white woman as well. Um, And that... Well, specifically of Mary Beecher for a moment, it seems like. Yeah, for a moment, but then you realize that's not what he's officially on trial for, Mm -hmm. and even though the prosecutor, I'm sure, would love to add another thing because he is an asshole in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's, by the way, there's a great repetition of this framing when a character is looking into a house through uh, a window and you see it first with Mary looking into the uh, abandoned station when it's dark and then you see uh, Jeffrey Hunter looking in daylight through a very similar window, trying to find Woody Strode. 
And I don't know where I was going with this, actually. I'm sorry. But I, I did think it was uh, a nice bit of repetition. Well, the, the other writing. image that repeats yeah. throughout that for me is the signal image of the film. And when it first comes on, it's just like, a, I don't know, like a shock of lightning or something hitting you is when the the trial as they move through the trial particularly at the beginning the first time the shot crops up uh ford cuts quickly into a shot of a sort of close-up of of woody strode and the prosecutor's white gloved finger is just like unmoving pointed right at his face and that shot sort of repeats with sometimes the prosecutor but sometimes other people like all these people pointing their finger in his face and he just is sort of stoically not reacting and the way that it that sort of embodies all of the prejudice that is both spoken and unspoken in this movie directed at him where i think as you suggest in the way the movie sort of plots itself out like he could be accused of doing any one of these things but they just they happen to land on this one but like he the society around him like must accuse him of something and the way that you keep seeing all these people pointing in his face it sort of reinforces that, I think. Yeah, you know, and again, you know, you see pointing in his face very, st- and he's accepting it very stoically until the room or you know the background around him, you know, darkens and it's just his face that's lit in the close up, and he he almost you know has a breakdown, and as we talked about earlier, it's very moving. I actually think that the most you know the signal image for me, which really is. It, does not repeat as often as that one, which I, I noticed too, and it's good pointing it out, is after after the fight where um, he comes back and warns them, you know, the night afterward, and they're singing Captain Buffalo, and you see him standing so heroically, um, and it's just, all, you, all this in the background is just the moon to his left, and it looks like he's even dwarfing the moon. It's such mm-hmm. a heroic and powerful image. And that is, I think, maybe the single most powerful image. And well, at least the one that has stayed with me most strongly in my mind. Although there's so many great I, I'm uh, glad you bring up that images. shot, though, sort of in relation to the to the sort of shots of the fingers in his, in his face. Because the, I, I totally agree. That shot's amazing. And that's certainly a shot that I, like, I think of when I think of this film. But it, those shots are so twinned and paired together because the shots of the sort of the prosecutor accusing him with his hand in his face is how the sort of white world sees him. And that shot of him just in heroic profile against the moon, that scene is basically the two white characters who are most aligned with him, the lawyer and Mary Beecher seeing from the perspective of the black soldiers that work for Rutledge, how they see Rutledge and the the whole singing of Captain Buffalo is there to reinforce that. And they even have a conversation as they're watching him sort of through the eyes of his soldiers, that this is how they see him. And he explains to her the history of the, the Captain Buffalo song and, and what it means. And the, the gulf between the shots of him being accused and him standing like astride against the moon. Like that gulf is, I don't know, like that's where all the conflicts that exist in this movie and exist in American society, society live is like that gulf between those different views of this character. Yeah. I I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. It's very powerful. Unlike a lot of Ford films that come to mind 
this film is, for the most part, set in interior spaces. And those interior spaces, while, as we talked about, they are very expressionistic, I do not mean that it's like, I don't know, a Lang movie, because it's very certainly not. But I, I do think that because most of the film does take place in interior scenes, and even the ones that do take place outdoors, as beautiful as Monument Valley always is, what I feel like you pick up more is the red clay rather than the mountains themselves. So I think that the interiority of the movie goes very well with the fact that this is supposed to be a film that is told largely subjectively. Mm-hmm. Well, and the only times, I mean, part of the reason that you don't get, I think the landscapes is because, I mean, obviously like Strode is, uh, Rutledge is under arrest and the only really the only time that you get the sort of sweeping Monument Valley views is the sequence where he's considering running away because he knows that yeah. the trial is, is the, the, the sort of system is out to convict him regardless of his innocence and his inherent nobility. And so you get like a moment where you kind of get that Monument Valley view. And then there's the sort of the fight sequence that happens or the, the action sequence that happens there as yeah. well. But like, that's really kind of the key oh, the only moment where you get that. And it's, it's, exactly, I think yeah. it's exactly as you're saying, because he is trapped, he gets one moment to of potential to escape, but he's he can't bring himself to do it. Because I think, again, and this is what makes him for me a really moving, like powerful Fordian character, is that as a black man, he knows that the system is sort of out to get him and, and will not treat him fairly. But he also, in a, in a really powerful way, believes in like the military code and and has to return because like he believes that that's what he has to do and that the future as he says throughout that like someday that that code will like bend towards treating him fairly but the thing is you know he explicitly does not want to be exonerated for being a hero, you know, the idea that if he's a hero, even though he did the other things, you know, he can get away with it because he actually did not do what he's accused of. And when Shaddock or Haddock, as <laughs> the old woman calls him, says that that is what what he was trying to do by going back, that's when he starts crying. Right. But that's also I mean, I feel like that's also such a, a key factor of of the or a key element of the Fordian hero is that they're always sort of reluctant heroes or at least the most moving examples to me are sort of the the reluctant heroes like Rutledge goes back because he believes it's like the the noble right thing to do but he doesn't believe that he's special in doing that I guess is like he yeah that makes sense like he just why should he be treated as a hero. Like he just followed the code as you're supposed to do, even knowing that that very same code may be the thing that is his downfall. Like that to me is just so Fordian. Yeah. Uh, but since you brought up the old ladies, I love them. I want to, I Ford, wanted another movie de- dedicated to them. Ford like- has the best old ladies in all of cinema. And I think this one, I mean, might- Hitchcock's. Ooh, that's true. 
don't yeah. know though. Ford, I think Ford just may have more of them. So maybe it's just a matter of, of quantity that makes me prefer Ford. But yeah, this might be my favorite uh, collection of like old Ford ditties <laughs> in any movie. They are uh, quite ridiculous in this. Yeah, some people I, I feel like never really warm up to Ford's humor. It doesn't always work for me, but often it does, and it did here. I thought that they were funny. Well, they're funny, but they're also. But it doesn't distract. I mean, it doesn't distract or like bring down the movie well, because it, it, if it's anything, a humor. Yeah, Sorry. if anything, I think it does the opposite because these sort of like you're like you know, censorious carping old grandma yeah. is also like a deep seated racist. Like, I mean, that's oh, yeah. like, they're both funny, but also embodiments of something really terrifying in this culture and the way that Ford is able to play them both for humor and allow you to laugh at it, but recognize just the profound prejudice that she evinces in her testimony against Rutledge, uh, is why they, they work in this film. It's so integrated. So, into, Rut, yeah, I mean, yeah, Rutledge, you know, you think he knew Lucy since she was, uh, you know, a little girl, and yet there, there's no benefit of the doubt given. Like, the, the uh, older, I'm forgetting her name, but the older woman doesn't give um, Rutledge the benefit of the doubt even before Cordelia, she... Cordelia, I think, yeah. Oh, yeah, even Cordelia, that's it. Even before she learns of the other... I don't want to say evidence because it's, it's not, you know, but uh, circumstantial evidence that, mm. that is seems like you could theoretically see how Rutledge could have done it. Uh, even before she knows that, she still looks at him like he did it. Well, and... And, and I just, sorry, I just want to say that, I, you know, I bring up that Rutledge knew Lucy since she was a little girl. So you have to think that he saw her as almost a daughter figure in a way. And the way that they walk together when Lucy is has the horse, you know, it, it does almost seem like a um, parental sort of bond. And so you you do imagine that, you know, what was this like, you know, for him to see? Because he's the you know last person to do it, but he's the first person, last person who would do it, but he's the first person who would be accused. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, I think you're totally right about the sort of parental relationship. Like the first time we see them, or really the only time I guess we see them interacting is in that store. And the first thing he says to her is like, I, you know, I taught you how to ride, but, you know, you need to be careful not to be doing these like super high jumps with your horse because like, you know, I taught you, I know that, you know, what your skills are and like, you need to be careful. And like that is a yeah. total, totally paternal gesture. Yeah. One thing I wanted to bring up in addition to what we had already talked uh, talked about about the old the old ladies in the courtroom is weirdly enough I think this is the place where the film connects with uh, Ace Attorney which it otherwise shares absolutely nothing in common with uh, but the the movie spends a lot of time on the sort of the antics that the courtroom as space for entertainment for this town uh, cause for uh, the judge and everyone else involved in the trial. It spends a lot of time on that. And the old ladies and the rest of the community, you know, are there at the beginning of the movie. They're sort of intruding on this space as spectacle. And, you know, again, like, uh, it's just weird to say this sentence, but like Mike, uh, Ford, it seems rather skeptical of the courtroom as a place for, for spectacle and kind of shoes them out, I think, to make that point. 
I mean, you also have the courtroom scene in Young Mr. Lincoln, which is, which is, I think, also one of the great courtroom scenes. I, I do think that this has another weird connection to Ace Attorney in that they are both movies about a defendant who has, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence against them, but the defense attorney manages to put a get together a case to show who actually did it, and then that person, the person who actually did it, managed to get uh, convicted. In the end, the innocent defendant, you know, walks free. Mm-hmm. Um, and do, so, on that note, do you want to talk about the denouement of the movie and who actually did it? Sure. Which, I guess, if anyone was listening who doesn't want to be spoiled, this would be your Spoilers chance for 1960. To... I know. Um, although, I, I am... I wouldn't have been, uh, I would have still watched the movie if I knew the ending, but I am glad that I didn't know the ending ahead of time. Not that I thought that Rutledge did it, but I, I, you know, I had no idea who actually did do it until, Right. You know, well, and I very, think there's a, a very uh, plausible version of this movie where it's tragedy and Rutledge gets convicted even though he didn't do it. Like, it's kind of hard to imagine Ford making that movie, but... Um, yeah, I don't think that the movie necessarily uh, preps you for how it ends, I guess. Yeah. How the dead boy's father tries to pin the blame onto his dead son. Uh, and I was convinced, by the way, that it was the dead son when they brought mm-hmm. him up. I was definitely convinced of that. And then I was really creeped out by the way he talked about why he had to do it. Mm-hmm. Which is unfortunately something that I've heard rapists say, you know, even to this present day. So right. it's not like any of this has gone away. It's it's a very contemporary film. I mean, I don't want to. Yes. I, I don't necessarily love that line of thinking that you know films are only relevant if they can tie <laughs> right. into our contemporary state. But um, certainly, I feel like the issues that are brought about by this movie really have not changed since uh when this movie takes place shortly after the civil war 1960 when it was released either you know it's we're still confronting these issues today so it it's, feels very relevant even though again i don't like to judge a film's success based on whether it feels relevant or not i mean you can say that it's uh that it feels extremely relevant without making that you know the the primary reason why this movie is is great and why it matters and if anything, I I really appreciated this movie more seeing it again because I'd first seen it like about two years ago, and I think in the uh, now naive optimism of the Obama years, uh, it didn't maybe seem quite so uh, important. But watching it again today, like wow, it, yeah, the way that it just seems to directly tap into like everything that I feel about America uh, right now is uh, both disturbing, but yeah, it's also cathartic in a way to remember, to be reminded that Ford understands America so deeply. I think that this movie yeah, made in 1960 feels so contemporary, as you say. Take it from two white guys. This other <laughs> white guy's movie is very relevant to being black in America today. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It gutted me. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It just, yeah, it gutted me, I think, because of the, the particular circumstances. Yeah. That I, I mean, but, I am laughing now, but this, you know, this movie made me cry. It was very moving. 
Yeah, but uh, I, I guess just to return to the the denouement um, that you brought up, I do think that it's that the character who ends up being the murderer and rapist is like so despicable yet literally in the film. So kind of hidden from view, like we really only get him in one scene prior to. And he comes across as very meek. Right. I mean, he's like almost like just registers as a like non-existent background character. Like he has like two lines or something. So Uh, was he in the film before um, he brought up that he could recognize the gold cross? I don't think he – well, I don't – I mean, he might have been in the background of the court scene, but I That's, that's what I'm saying. I don't remember yeah. him at all before he wanted to testify that he could recognize the gold cross. And if he was in the film in earlier scenes, even in just one earlier scene, I think that shows how you know little of a uh, presence you know he registered throughout, mm-hmm. which is why the fact that then you can't get out of his mind how – you know, you know, creeping, sickening. Mm-hmm. He sounds when he admits to what he did. Um, you know, it's it's a great turnaround. Well, and I think that that narrative that the or the way that the film disperses or parcels out that narrative information sort of ties in with the way that the community depicted in the film understands the crime at the center of this movie. Like the really despicable. Like Rutledge is so obviously an honorable, noble person, and yet they just reflexively accuse him. And yet there is just this like absolutely despicable person hiding in plain sight in their community. And like the community, the film almost like doesn't even see him until like he sort of self immolates in a way and is finally revealed. I feel like there's so much we could keep talking about this film and I'm sure there are things I wanted to bring up that I forgot um, but do you any uh, last things to say before we move on to genealogies of crime? No, I, I mean, I think that, as we had said, uh, I was uh, both, like I said, disturbed but happy to have watched this film again, given uh, our current reality. And it's, like I said, I, I don't think it's a Fordian masterpiece only because there are so many jewels in that crown. It's... Hard to pick. If anyone else had only made this film, like I, I think I probably would be hailing it as one of the essential American movies. Uh, but man, yeah, my, like, my, I'm not sure what my 20th favorite Ford would be, but <laughs> it's probably better than most directors' best movie. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? And so I feel like in a way, I, I don't give this movie enough credit. I mean, just talking about it, like I, I feel like I'm getting really emotional about it. Like it's that good. I just because. For it is so good. Like, I just don't give it enough credit. But if you need a movie to, I think, help explain our current politics, like, watching this, I think Ford always helps explain America to me. And I am grateful for having watched this uh, as one more sort of reminder that, that Ford's canon always is there to help do that for me. Yeah. And my last thing I want to say is that I'm very glad that. Ford was able to give Woody Strode a leading role in one of his movies. Um, and, you know, as I said, he does a phenomenal job. And it's one of my, I, you know, it's one of my favorite performances in all of Ford, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk about genealogies of a crime. Le premier jour de la huitième lune de la première année de l'ère Taiwan de Sun Quan de Wu, 
un jeune homme dont les horoscopes avaient prédit qu'il serait un assassin, tua une femme de la famille de Liu Biao. Une femme solitaire accepta de le cacher dans sa maison, mais cette femme était en réalité le fantôme de la femme qu'il avait tuée. Il tomba amoureux de la femme fantôme. Elle lui dévoila sa véritable identité et qu'elle n'était là que pour se venger. Welcome back, and now we are going to be discussing the odd duck out of this this podcast. Raoui. Yeah, so Evan, before you intro the film itself, do you want to explain why it's the odd duck out? Well, I I will do that here. So, uh, Genealogies of a Crime, Raoui Reese's film, was one that we picked, uh, neither of us had seen it, based essentially on its letterbox description and I think our mutual uh, admiration for Ruiz, uh, the description that we read made it sound like much more of a sort of conventional courtroom film uh, along the lines of the other two films that we discussed. I don't know why we uh, ever thought that Ruiz would, <laughs> would play it that straight because, of course, uh, it is nothing so conventional. Uh, so I guess especially because this film is so heady and multivalent um i think i'm going to give a brief plot description which we normally don't do but i think it would be very easy to get lost in talking about this movie if we didn't lay out a little bit of what's happening so yeah uh, by the way i like how you say that as if like ace attorney is really straightforward and <laughs> well, not <but> like <laughs> no i know what you mean i know yeah. i'm just messing around yeah uh ruiz is his own brand of uh <laughs> Like oh, in, certainly, certainly. Interlocking th- stories within stories and whatever. Anyways, so uh, Catherine Deneuve uh, is plays Solange, who is a lawyer, uh, famous for taking on impossible cases and always losing them, who's defending a young man uh, who has killed his aunt. The aunt uh, was a psychologist who believed that all human traits, or at least all like criminal human traits, are locked in at the age of five, basically, psychologically, and that her nephew, René, played by Melville Poupau, I think that's how you say his last name, has sort of displayed criminal behavior since he was five. From there, it basically spins off into much more bizarre territory as uh, Catherine Deneuve's lawyer sort of investigates this case, uh, there are twin competing uh, psychological, like underground psychological societies, flashbacks where Deneuve plays the murdered aunt, uh, a house that seems to come out of Rivette with mirrors and Bernadette Lafont living in it, uh, and mass suicide. Uh, so uh, I think that pretty much explains why this is sort of the odd duck out of the film's but I do think that in its own Ruizian way poses at least one, I think, sort of central question related to the law or a question that the law uh, has to deal with, which is, are criminals born or made? And then it poses about 15 other questions uh, every five minutes. But anyways, uh, that's my intro. So, Eli, what did you think about this movie? You know, whenever I see a Ruiz, I feel a lot dumber afterward um because he is so smart but anyway so i did like this movie not as much as some of his other movies uh and i haven't i think yet been able to put my finger exactly on why that is you know it's interesting 
that you know we talked about this movie being so odd and you read i i think it was jonathan rosenbaum's review of this and he talked about how you know this is so much more straightforward than a lot of Ruiz's other movies and he's probably right Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean too much considering um how strange this movie manages to be despite having a relatively straightforward approach to things i don't know really how to talk about this movie (laughs) is there any specific point you want to bring up well i know it's like it's such a strange movie like it feels like there are so many entry points that it's like hard to pick one. But what do you make of the repeated image of Go, the the, the board game? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I really have no, I don't know. Uh, the Go image and the sort of like weird like Oriental fable that encloses the film on sort no, of either I, end. No, I feel like the the fable actually really is. Maybe it doesn't make sense before you've actually seen the events of the movie, but certainly by the end makes a lot hmm. of sense why it was brought up. Because the idea is... So the fable is essentially that a murderer hides out in this house, and the owner of the house turns out to be the ghost of the victim. And because so much of this movie is about playing with identity, and that's really where the second psychologist comes in, um, but yeah, identity, and, and you see Deneuve and the other, the, Renee, uh, the character's mm-hmm. name, I can't remember the actor's yeah, name. Yeah, Renee, yeah. Yeah. Um, they switch roles, and then Deneuve, of course, has dual roles. And <laughs> oh, I did, yeah, I didn't even describe the switching that they do. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I feel like because Deneuve kills him in the end, spoiler, um, you can, if you tie it back into the story... That would only make sense if she is the ghost of her mm-hmm. murdered of the murdered aunt. And while that is not literally true, because uh, Deneuve plays dual roles in the movie, uh, you can really take it because how fluid identity is in this movie in certain respects. You can take that fable to you know be a um, microcosm of the basic plot of the movie. I think that's really, I think that's really great how you describe that. Like, and I guess the way that I would say that connects with sort of the other films that we're talking about is that that particular, or the identities kind of swapping the fluidness of the identity here is particularly tied to the work of Deneuve being a lawyer. And I think that, Again, it's hard a, to pin theory, this. By, by the way, we talked about Phoenix Wright maybe being not a great lawyer. <laughs> he wins his cases. Right. To she is, not so much. She literally never, never won a case in her She won history. this case, and That's then true. she killed her client. Yeah, but I do think that the movie, the way that the movie sort of understands the profession of being a lawyer is that it, it poses that being a lawyer is like essentially a fictive exercise. Like... Deneuve's job is to sort of not just to build a fiction that serves her client, but to literally like inhabit and perform that fiction to the point where she believes in Renee's innocence so that she can defend him. And like, I kind of like the idea of that as sort of laying out what the, the lawyer's metaphysical job is in a way is to sort of build this fictive universe for your client and and she just takes it like so 
far that it 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 bends reality to the point where they're indistinguishable. Yeah, I agree, except I would like to add that it's not a melding of those two things. It's melding of three things, those two, and psychology as a mm-hmm. profession. And really, she seems much more like a psychologist than a lawyer for most of this movie, because there is there there is a very unclear blending of the three throughout that you know presents a very heady mix mm-hmm. and i also like the idea that psychologists are part of a you know secret underground society <laughs> who of course um, you know obviously they're going to commit suicide yeah um, like a this, this cabal of <laughs> psychologists yeah which i've actually i i've seen when there's uh, a Ruse movie that I've seen that still doesn't have English subtitles, so I'm not sure what it's about, but it's really <laughs> cool. And it has a French title. That I, it's a short movie. I can't remember. I feel silly for bringing this up. But anyway, there you you see images of a body splayed uh, across the floor like that, and that made me think of his earlier film there. So I, I wonder if that film ever gets English subtitles and I'll be able to see what it's about. If perhaps be, uh, these characters turn out to be psychologists, because hmm. in that movie, it's a very, you see that people are talking in offices. So there's something academic hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but my tangent, notwithstanding, um, I wonder if you would say this film has, a dislike of psychologists. Uh, yeah. I, I think, yeah. <laughs> to put it mildly, like Nabokov would like this movie for more reasons than one, but I think the dislike of psychologists is pretty big up there. Uh, yeah, I wrote in my notes anti psychology, and then the three <laughs> exclamation points after it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think the psychologists in here are like totally buffoonish and. The I guess it's worth like kind of laying out briefly the particular like beliefs of their competing psychological systems at least as best as I understand them. Well, before you do that, and please, and I please, I really want you to because I don't think I understand. Well, I'm gonna try because I don't know that I, I understand. Yeah, I just want to say that I it's it's especially in retrospect funny that you know Michelle Pickley's uh, group of psychologists is you know, initially presented as, you know, a an underground secret society with influence who may have actually committed this murder. And they then turn out to really not be that sinister at all. Weird, but they are presented as, you know, buffoons. Buffoons that might actually have negative impact upon the world, but nothing right. intentionally sinister. And they're really, and there's nothing scary about it the way it could be like, in, uh, you know, a Lang movie, for instance. Well, yeah, I, th- I think there is a weird connection with Lang here. Like, it does feel like that, again, that cabalish society and, like, Lang's interest in psychology, like, could could be part of that. But as you suggest, they're essentially, like, in the end, just kind of rubes in this. Yeah. Uh, because they're, I think, in, and the reason they come across as buffoonish is that there are systems that they have, these, like, very particular psychological beliefs, like, don't, like they don't really mean anything or seem to have any like real bearing on any of the characters in the film. Like, so again, as best as I understand what they're doing, uh, Michelle Pico Lee's like psychological group of which the ant, the ant belong to that group, that belief system. Not only do they believe 
in this sort of idea that people's personalities are like locked in at an early age and that you can't really change them. But they also believe, and I don't know why you would believe this if you believe the former, but that like somehow uh, like performing the like roles like of or, or performing the sort of darkest desires that you have like expurgates them in some way. Like there's this long sequence it prevents you from acting upon yeah, your yeah, ingrained desires. It. So yeah, there's this like long sequence where they are in the house that uh, Renee and the aunt lived in and they like are blindfolded and like play acting the murder that Renee supposedly wants to commit against his aunt. But like somehow like by play acting it, it's going to prevent him from doing it, but then he does it. So like the, the like psychological, like the idea that this somehow this, this psychological game like helps him proves to be entirely ridiculous and untrue. And if I remember correctly, that's why they all commit suicide. I don't remember. Like, it's not particularly clear. I'm sorry to our listeners. (laughs) It may seem like we did not watch this movie. I promise you we did. I challenge any of our viewers to watch this movie and give a clearer synopsis than than we're able to provide. Because, man. Yeah. What do you make of the fact that Deneuve, playing the lawyer, apparently as a child, she liked to throw cats out the window and kill them. <laughs> but she completely forgot about it. <laughs> well, I know. I As I was talking about the, like, people, their traits being, like, locked in when they're five, I was yeah, like, oh, yeah. we, we didn't even talk about the tangent with Deneuve also maybe being a murderer because she, too, like, showed murderous tendencies as a child. And, again, I think that ties back to the the murder that she does commit at the end of the movie like it, well yeah because she sees herself as a child holding a cat before she <laughs> decides to commit murder which would mean the psychologists are right even though they're clearly <laughs> wrong yeah are they right i don't yeah it's like this such this like ruizian like ouroboros thing where all these different stories like seem to just like devour each other and then like kind of like but the stories like then are like spit back out in like weird permutations yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know that I have, like, a coherent reading of that, but it's clearly connected to the Rene uh, character and his uh, violent tendencies as a child. Uh, why? Eh. <laughs> yeah, for me, this movie isn't that funny while you're watching it, but the more you think about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Like, because there's no real, like, type of gag humor like you would see in Ace Attorney or even in the comic interlude in Sergeant Rutledge. But the absurdity of it all becomes funnier the more you talk about it. Yeah, well, it's like, it's like conceptually very funny. And actually one kind of – I don't know if this really counts as a conceptual joke because I don't know how intentional it was on Ruiz's part. But it at least made me laugh because of sort of our uh, reading of the plot synopsis and going in thinking this was like more of a like legal thriller than it, than it really is. Is that like it? It seems to be building like you're going to get to like a courtroom scene for most I know what of the you're movie, about, yeah. and it's like okay, so we have all these lawyers and like they're debating the case, and okay, now it's time to go to court, <laughs> and then the courtroom scene is like two seconds of like courtroom sketches, and then it's over. <laughs> yeah, which I found like really hilarious, but maybe only because of my expectations. But 
<laughs> well, especially since we picked this film, and we were going to do an episode about courtroom drama. <laughs> but thanks a lot, Raul. Yeah, I try. yeah. Oh, Ruiz. Uh, but I guess, uh, since we can't make any sense of this plot, uh, why don't we talk about some of the sort of Ruizian touches throughout? Because I have myself been on something of a Ruiz kick lately, and I just, even when I'm at my most kind of baffled at what Ruiz is doing narratively, I am always totally, at least in everything that I've seen, like totally sort of clicking with what he's doing visually and with the music. Um, so I guess one of those sort of touches that recurs throughout this movie and throughout his other movies that I love and just can't get enough of and still manages to sort of take my breath away, I, I suppose, like even though he does it in pretty much every movie, is when he's sort of like in the middle of a scene will like pan the camera over or sort of dolly it over to a wall and you'll just see the shadows of the characters or maybe even characters that you haven't seen yet on screen on the wall. And you'll see whatever action is happening in the scene playing out uh, sort of in silhouetted shadow. Uh, and I just, I love every shot in the movie that that's like that. Well, that's what I was going to bring up. So <laughs> no, um, I completely agree. It's a fantastic touch that is almost a calling card um, for mm-hmm. Ruiz. Um, if we're talking about just little elements that we liked, I think this was with the second psychologist, the one who's not Michelle Pigley, and he's in he's in a chair and he's kind of maybe swiveling slowly in the chair, but whatever it is, the effect is that you see the camera's clearly moving, but he's staying more or less at the center mm-hmm. left of the frame, and it's really eerie. Um, and uh, and seems unnatural in a way. Another thing I really liked, and you brought this up in your intro, was the almost Rovettian house. I love how there's that aquarium in the wall that at first I thought, oh, there's just a window, and then I see the fish, oh, it's an aquarium. Then I see someone looking through, um, or rather, I see a face, and I think, oh, it's a one-way mirror, and then, oh, that person is seeing through. It's a two-way mirror kind of thing. And there's just a lot of sleight of hand in a few seconds there. And also the sheer weirdness of having that aquarium in the wall <laughs> that it seems very broke. Yeah. Well, and, and that whole aquarium thing, I had the exact same reaction as you of being like, okay, it's a it's like an aquarium. It's a one-way mirror. I think it's a two-way mirror. Like, it, it has this sort of... Uh, Trump lawyer. Well, two-way mirror is just a clear space. Well, if that's true. I don't know what. Yeah, I, that was my fault for bringing up the phrase two-way mirror. Yeah, a window, I guess. But yeah, I mean, it that's has, what it is. Yeah, it has that sort of like Trump lawyer thing that Ruiz loves to employ, where like objects. It has a, a what? I'm sorry. Uh, Trump lawyer, like you know, trick of the eye, like the. Don't say something with Trump in it, please. <laughs> it's French. It's like a trick of the eye, right? Like it's like a an object that looks like it's one thing, but sort of tricks your eye because it's actually something else, right? And, yeah. and that's something that that comes up um, throughout Ruiz. I guess just yeah. real quick to return to the the other character, the psychologist that you mentioned, who is uh, not Michelle Pickley. Uh I love that he is like basically only communicates through 
like analogies to yes. various uh, literary like authors and characters. Like every conversation he's in is well, him. Well, just... I feel like that's it. One adds to the surrealness of it, but two, it's a great satirization of um, academies in a way. Right. I mean, it felt a little too close to me. <laughs> I was like, oh. I feel like that's every conversation I have is just like, oh, that's like in whatever. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I uh, I like that a lot. And I also like his particularly, like, disgusting-sounding drink order that he... What was it? It's like wine, like port, whiskey, and then water. Yeah. And <laughs> is, it's like is serving... that not good? Oh, I I've don't know. Had it. It, it doesn't sound good. I've I mean, never it, had port, so oh, I don't. Well, I like port, yeah. but I don't know. That doesn't sound good. But anyways, like <laughs> the movie just goes out of his way to highlight this really bizarre drink order, and then they like bring him out this like brown looking like unpleasant drink. I don't know. Anyways, strange yeah. little touch like that I like in Ruiz. But I guess I would say to return to the sort of the mirror thing and the shadows on the wall. In general, I think one thing that really draws me to Ruiz is that the, the sort of pleasures of those, those uh, things that he employs are like really return me, I think to like the pleasures of silent early cinema. Like he has this faith in these like little simple tricks, like just, I mean like the way he'll tint a random, you know, sky like a color and then leave the bottom half of the the screen untinted or he'll just like throw a fisheye lens on there all of which in maybe someone else's hands would just seem like kitschy and and kind of dumb but like ruiz like seems to believe in their sort of magic lantern-esque effect so wholly that i find myself just totally enraptured by that and it takes me back to what i imagine like seeing early cinema might have felt like I see that in – I do say that a bit in this film. I see that a lot more – for me, at least, in some of his other works. Um, but I understand where you're coming from, certainly. I'm trying to think – I know we brought up Go, uh, the board game Go, which is, I think, the most common image in this movie. And I'm trying to think – I mean, I know that Ruiz loves – to compare things to games, there's a zigzag, which was a really great short of his. Um, and you could maybe think about this as this whole narrative is just one long game of go between two people. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to think, I don't know the game too well, if there's anything specific to that game. I guess, yeah, I haven't played it in a long time, but my memory of go is that you're trying to use your trap pieces to trap trap. things. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so I feel like that is a possible connection that, you know, we should be seeing, but I don't really know unless we're thinking, you know, it's Renee trying to trap his defense attorney into getting him exonerated and then basically having her at his beck and call. If that's what it is, but I feel like there's maybe some other meaning there that I'm not quite seeing. And maybe if you do, this would be a good place to chime in. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, All right, the, so we leave that to the listeners. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's open for interpretation uh, by someone else, preferably, because I have no idea. Uh, but I did. I guess I did want to mention 
two other, unless you have something else you want to say. Uh, no, please. Two other little uh, kind of quotes in the movie that sort of, I think, tie it back to maybe the the actual theme of this episode or the purported theme of this episode, which is sort of like law and, and courtrooms and whatnot. There is, I can't remember who says it. I think it's the the not Michelle Picoli uh, psychologist who says, uh, behind any social science, you'll find the law and behind the law, a fairy tale, which I'm not sure that that's like, that I tr- read that as being all that deep of an insight about the law, but it does seem like... But it like, does go into the blending of the three exactly. professions we were talking about. Right, and I think it it illuminates something about how Ruiz sees the law and, and these um, societal uh Is it, though, because I, I feel like, yes, that's an idea that's brought up in the movie, and then characters, in a way, kind of act that out, but I feel like we're meant to see the whole thing as ridiculous... And I wouldn't necessarily say that that is what Ruiz believes. That it's ridiculous? More, no, that, that he believes that these things, that it makes sense that they're blended and that he believes the statement that you read. Well, I guess basically. like behind the law, there's a fairy tale to me seems like a, a fairly Ruizian sentiment. Like behind this thing that appears to have like clearer rules and dictums, there's actually something that's less sort of like higher level thinking there's something that's more like subconscious or and like fairy tales are are like about like storytelling in often non-rational ways right like there's something about ruiz's vision of the law that's like non-rational or even irrational i suppose is is what i would what i take from that can we talk about the title sure yeah genealogies of a crime that's a it's a really good title I I do think that this goes into two things. One, the fact that this is a multiple genealogies, but a single crime, I think relates back to, to the fable uh, and the fact that you have Danu playing multiple roles, meaning the fable relates to what happens in the plot and you have, you know, the same actress committing the same act twice, essentially, or sorry, not, one being murdered and one, you know, committing revenge is what I meant. Sorry. Um, but yeah, um, that goes into the, the idea that it's the same crime, but there are just, you know, various ways you're going to get to it, but no matter what, you're going to have the same outcome. Maybe there's nothing in there, but it, it's, it's a really weird title. Well, and, and I don't want to press it, too much into it, but yeah. It's like it suggests how the crime like mutates and sort of like spores on its own, like separate from the, the participants who are involved in it and, and sort of like, like is, how do I describe this? Like Deneuve is, is not involved in this crime until she becomes, or takes on the, the role of being the lawyer, which literally means in this movie, taking on like the role of a character in the drama of the crime. And then, that crime sort of like mutates into her real life where then she sort of like commits a similar crime related to the initial crime, which she was initially unrelated to. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I can't mean, it, I swear it, I see it the doesn't, title. But you know, 
Neither does this movie, so we're good. Yeah. Anyway, no further questions, Your Honor. <laughs> Should we consider this case closed? Yes, and I, I don't imagine anyone is still listening <laughs> because of these terrible puns that we did. Like from the big, I think that no one is still listening because of the puns at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> well, there, um, there was a pause for the seriousness of Sergeant Rutledge, so obviously you can skip but to anyway, Sergeant Rutledge. Exactly. Anyway, as my closing statement, I want to say that, you know, we, I, I think as a rule or maybe just a habit here, you know, want to do like three films. So one film that I would have wanted to include is Anatomy of a Murder. And so I don't want to talk about it right now, but I'm just saying if for some reason you're listening and you have not seen Anatomy <laughs> of a Murder and are interested in legal films or just good films in general, see that, obviously see the films we're talking about today, and please keep listening. Yes. Good movie. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we can wrap this up. So uh, thanks again, Eli. Glad that I was at least able to talk to someone about genealogies of a crime because I feel like I've been living in that movie's headspace for the last uh, week. So I feel like well, I've now... I, I know a lot of people in New York who are seeing it right now because it's playing on 35mm. Oh, and that's I'm true. really fucking jealous because this movie I saw in... Let's just say that the quality could be better. Yes. I mean, that's the case for all kinds of Ruiz movies, so... But anyway, all these mo- all three movies we saw to get today, I give a verdict of not guilty. <laughs> there you go. Okay, well, we'll free the listeners from our puns now. So uh, thanks again, Eli, and uh, we will see you all next time.